welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 70 for April 2017. I am your co-host, the first, Gwindungi. With me as always is co-host, the first, second, co-host, the second. There's two of us. Mike. Mike McGinnis. How are you doing, Mike? I'm just a clone of Quinn, uh, a <laughs> shadow of, of the, the real thing, but you know. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. I got my uh, coffee. It's Friday night. I'm all hopped up on goofballs and I'm ready to go. That's good, because I powered through that opening because I don't want to do it again. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Despite choking us. on it. They yeah. laugh at us like they do. That's Have good. Been. Well, they'll also, they'll also laugh at my voice. I'm uh, at the tail end of a cold here, so I oh. may lose it halfway through the show, but uh, I think many of our listeners would consider that a feature, not a bug. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think, I think if one of us had to go away, they'd, they'd vote for me. they put me on the, on the raft and <laughs> shove me off. I don't think that's true. Maybe we'll take a poll. Which one of your co-hosts would you rather get rid of? <laughs> uh, I don't think either of us would like the results of that. So, <laughs> so uh, we're one month closer to K-Fest. It's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Uh, always good stuff happening there. Of course, well, I mean, we'll talk about this again in the news, but if, if ever there was a time to, to sign up for early registration, it would be now because this year it's limited to the first 100 registrants. That's right. Yeah, and they're limiting it for, I think, the first time ever, right? Which uh, yeah. is a, a pretty good problem to have. I mean, the venue is not infinite, so there is a, always going to be a limit at some point. And uh, there's, uh, yeah, some concern about hitting it this year, which is great. That's a, yeah, good. that's a good kind of problem to have, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yep, I'm registered, so I will be there for sure. And uh, this is the time of year when I start remembering that maybe I should actually do the project that I'm planning to present. So, uh, you know, time to get busy on that, I guess. Yeah, you might, uh, might want to do that. Of course, you know, you could just get up there and improv it, and I'm sure you'd fool most of us, so. Yeah, yeah everybody's asleep anyway That's to right. get the morning sessions. By Friday, yeah, forget about yeah. it. He's dozing <laughs> off in the chairs. Yeah. All right, well, uh, we did our, our intro adieu, and uh, we got a great interview today with uh, Mark Lemmett of uh, 6502 Workshop, so why don't we yeah. roll on into that? Pretty awesome. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Peter Lount, and I'm one of the authors of Gemstone Warrior. You are listening to Open Apple Podcast. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, Quinn. Hi, Mike. It's a pleasure to be oh, here. Mark, how are you? I'm, I'm pretty good, thanks. How are, how are both of you? Doing all right. Uh, happy to be talking to you since we've talked about you a whole lot. <laughs> My ears have been ringing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, like, why don't we uh, why don't we avoid burying the lead here, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about about six thousand five hundred two workshop and uh, what you guys have been working on? Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, we're we're working on uh, Nox Archaeus. That is our our first project, a eight uh, uh, bit uh, RPG for the uh, Apple II, and of course, able to be played on PCs and uh, Macs via emulator. And, uh, we're really having a lot of, uh, a lot of fun with it. Um, I've been at it now for about, uh, a year and a half. And, uh, you know, I have to admit, Quinn, you threw me off here. I, I did my homework and I, and I listened to about two years of Open Apple shows. And you, and you always ask, uh, how did you get started on the Apple II? I'm all set to answer that question. <laughs> Don't worry. That question's coming. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but no of course i i, I can uh I, I can start in in whichever uh whichever order you prefer <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, I guess our, most of our listeners probably know, but uh, uh, tell us a little bit about Nox Archaeus. What kind of game is it? And, and uh, when do you expect it might be re- ready for playtesting and that sort of thing? Sure, uh, a- absolutely. So uh, it is a, uh, from a, an interface standpoint, it's a, it's a tile-based uh, RPG game, uh, sword and sorcery themed. Uh, very much inspired by uh, the Ultima series and uh, other similar uh, tile-based games like Deathlord and uh, Wrath of Denethor. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's going to have uh, uh, dungeons and uh, combat and towns and castles and, uh, and, you know, all the sorts of things that one would expect in, uh, you know, that kind of game. And we're trying to, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, put our own stamp on it as well, uh, push the frontier a bit with new features and, uh, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, really go deep on the storyline. That's, that's, uh, you know, it was definitely a priority from the beginning is, uh, we love combat, you know, in our, in our games. Uh, and, uh, there's going to be a lot of combat and really interesting combat with, uh, uh, tactical and strategic scenarios that, uh, uh, you know, we hope will, you know, kind of push the, uh, the envelope on uh, what had been uh, in 8-bit uh, tile games before, uh, but also very integrated with uh, the storyline. Uh, it, it'll be an open linear world, uh, you know, as uh, many people have come to know and love, including uh, myself and, and uh, you know, team members. And, we, and we've got some interesting ideas on how to allow the player to explore where they want to explore, uh, enjoy a very rich storyline, and uh, also enjoy some very... Uh, intricate uh, combat scenarios that have uh, storyline elements tied to them. So it's not just the same, you know, kind of mundane thing over and over. Very cool. Okay. Well, we can uh, circle back to that in a little bit, but uh, now we get that out of the way. Uh, let's, mm-hmm. let's go, let's go back to, to the beginning. How, uh, how did you get started with the Apple II? Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, my family bought a uh, uh, Apple II Plus when I was five years old. That was the uh, the very beginning, <laughs> and uh, my earliest memories uh, on that computer were playing Ultima three. Um, well, I use the term playing loosely. I, I have uh, two older brothers, uh, seven and ten years older than me, and uh, they were playing Ultima three. And uh, after I bugged them for long enough, uh, they they reluctantly uh, would take the player disc out of the drive and let me you know basically take it from there, run around, you know, on the game with the player disc out. I couldn't hurt their characters, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I couldn't enter any towns or castles or dungeons or any of the cool stuff, but (laughs) hey, I was pretty young. I didn't really know what I was was doing anyway beyond, uh, you know, using the arrow keys to move around, but uh, didn't know what I was doing, but it sure was fun. That was uh, the thing that (laughs) stood out to me. You know, that was really the origin of uh, my desire to create an RPG came from you know, those early experiences with, uh, you know, the games that were out there at the time and, you know, then starting to learn Applesoft, you know, that's what my brothers were doing too, you know, <laughs> they wanted to write games, you know, so it all kind of came together for me in that way. You know, the, the, thus started the, you know, the lifelong process of, you know, banging my head against the wall, <laughs> trying to get things, uh, uh, you know, get things to work in 8-bit machines. Um by the time I was uh, a young teenager, uh, I tried to create a tile engine uh, in AppleSoft. Uh, I, I kind of finally got to the point that I thought I kind of understood the concepts uh, enough 
that uh, I, I took a took a shot at it and uh, got it all typed in and yeah, you know, really hadn't figured out how to you know like do unit testing or anything and you know do do little small little proofs of concept. It was like I typed in the whole thing, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the moment of truth, you know, I type run, you know, okay, let's see what happens here, and I got beep, you know, some kind of an error that <laughs> I don't remember exactly what it was, but it basically meant I ran out of memory for what was reserved for Epitaph <laughs> programs. <laughs> it's like, whoa, gee, I didn't know there was a limit, you know. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was an interesting experience. And uh, uh, that, that, was, that was really kind of, uh, you know, where, where I left off with the project on the Apple for, for many years, because at the time I didn't know assembly language. I didn't have the right books on assembly language or, you know, no other people that knew. I tried, believe me, I tried. That's a whole story in and of itself. But uh, basically, uh, it, it took the, uh, I hate to say it, but the introduction of the uh, 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 the IBM PC, the 386 specifically, was, was the point where my dad kind of jumped ship. Instead of getting a Mac, he bought a PC. Uh, you know, he, he didn't really for, forgive them for uh, Apple Computer, that is, for not making uh, the software compatible after he had invested all this money in. So he got a PC, and so one of the first things I did with that was, uh, you know, learn. Uh, I think it was Quick Basic 4.5, and uh, well, let's take a crack at that tile engine again and see if I can just brute force <laughs> it. You know, I got this fast 80386 processor. I think it was like 33 megahertz or something. So, uh, and four mega RAM. It was like, oh, surely this will work, you know. And uh, you know, basically put in the same, you know, design. And uh, much to my delight, uh, it worked. Uh, much to my dismay, <laughs> it was entirely too slow. I mean, I saw every line drawing on the screen when mm-hmm. you know when the player moved, and and at the time, I, I didn't really know what else to do, so I ended up tabling the project at that point for many, many years. But in hindsight, uh, you know, my problems were along the lines of well, first of all, I was using Basic again, even though it was on a faster machine, and and then secondly. Um, uh, to facilitate the graphics movement instead of uh, doing screen scrolling, uh, you know, where the contents of the video memory are just shifted around and only the new tiles on the screen edge are drawn. I was doing screen draws of everything over and over. And, uh, you know, that that just kind of, from a design standpoint, doesn't work even on a 386. Um, I, I, modern day computers, I bet you could get away with it, but uh, I, I, I haven't bothered to try because I've been having so much more fun uh, you know, actually going back to the Apple and doing it right in assembly language and uh, picking up where I left off. Uh, that's been uh, that's been much more fun. <laughs> so where did you go from there? Well, uh, basically, I would say, you know, while I thought a project about the project a lot for many years, uh, where it really, you know, kind of came back to the forefront uh, was, I think, in 2014, so this is maybe three years ago, um, I bought an Apple II on eBay. And while I played around in emulators uh, at a few points over the years, um, you know, that was the first time I actually sat down on physical Apple II hardware in decades. And uh, when I bought it at the time, I thought, you know, uh, I'll have some fun playing some old games. And uh, uh, Mike Reimer, my uh, project uh, co-founder, uh, and I had played games when we were growing up as kids. You know, we would sit there and play, you know, Ultima uh, on the phone with each other and tie up our parents' phone lines for, for hours and hours and hours and just drive them insane. 
And uh, so the after I got this uh, this Apple and, you know, he was playing in emulators and there we there were again doing the same old thing again, but this time in text messages, so not annoying people. And uh, so we did that for a while and, you know, went through Castle Wolfenstein, Bard's Tale and Ultima. And invariably that, you know, rekindled the desire to, you know, to make a game. And uh, basically there was a point where it was like, okay, well, instead of starting up, uh, you know, playing another game, uh, uh, you know, with our spare time, instead of uh, uh, doing that, you know, we would just, uh, you know, start start making one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, at first, uh, you know, it was really, it was really just totally for the sake of doing it. We, we really weren't expecting anybody would ever play it, you know, because we had been didn't know anything about the Apple II community at that point. And then, um, you know, as uh, I was going online and, you know, finding different forums and things and discovered this wonderful, thriving, uh, you know, Apple II community, you know, we were like, wow, a few people might actually want to play this, you know. And and, and at this point, I mean, I think six or seven is realistic for sure. So uh, eventually uh, we announced the project publicly. I think that was in March 2016, and that's when we actually set up uh, 6502 Workshop as a company uh, to kind of keep all the I's dotted and, you know, T's crossed from a legal and tax standpoint. And uh, that's that's when we really got the ball uh, rolling. The goal of the project um, has kind of evolved over time, too. Uh, at, at first, uh, you know, we were just hoping to create a cool game. Uh, and uh, it absolutely still is that and will always be that. Um, and primarily that, uh, but to us also, uh, it, it's really been an interesting experience in the sense of, um, we feel like we're kind of exploring an alternate timeline, uh, in computing history. Uh, you know, basically, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, <laughs> you know, we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the 1980s developers and trying to do what we think they might have done if game development on the Apple II had continued past you know, 1990 or so, um, you know, basically what would have happened if the Macintosh and IBM PC revolution had been delayed, uh, which I think certainly could have happened if, uh, you know, a few key events at, um, you know, Apple and Microsoft had turned out differently. Uh, so that's been a really exciting aspect of, of this as well. That's a, yeah, that's a really great, great way to say that. I mean, that's a lot of what fascinates me about the current development as well, is that people are doing all these incredible things on these machines, you know, frequently well past what, you know, the games of the time did, you know, because we have the benefit of modern tools and access to every piece of documentation and, you know, and community uh, sharing and so on. But at the end of the day, everything we're doing, it was still possible, you know, in 1978 or whatever. So, uh, you know, we're not cheating in any in any sense. We're just uh, sort of leveraging uh, our modern resources to squeeze that last, you know, 2% or whatever out of the machine, which uh, I find really interesting. Um, now, you touched on something a bit earlier. You, you you told the story of sort of your fascination with tile engines over the years. And uh, uh, I really appreciated that as well, because that's I also shared that. Um, and I also had the same problem where every time I got a new computer, I'd write a tile <laughs> engine on it. Uh, but but I never used I never used the right language, so they were always too slow. <laughs> and, uh, well, gee, we have so, that in common. That's uh, yeah, wasn't yeah, just me. Have, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I I have a dozen uh, half baked tile engines on various. But, um, <laughs> well, I, I hope you still have the code for them. I I lost mine in a move years ago. My my mm -hmm. uh, earlier ones. So yeah, I think I actually do. I I, I wrote uh, two or three on the two GS and a bunch of a bunch on the Mac and. Uh, 
a couple on the PC as well. But um, anyway, so where I was going with that is when you got back to the Apple II, uh, you knew BASIC wasn't going to do it, obviously, and you knew you had to get into assembly. So had you done assembly already then by that point, or did you get into assembly just to do this project? Uh, I got into assembly just to do this project. It, it, it was that, that was a really interesting uh, evolution in and of itself because uh, it, th- this learning assembly language as well as writing the game to me, uh, it, you know, growing up, it was like the mountain that I always tried to summit and, and you know, or never climbed. Uh, so to speak, it, it uh, I wanted to do it so bad because uh, I wanted to write this game so bad. And I just kept running into brick wall after brick wall uh, as, as a kid and trying to learn it. And as, as a matter of context, the story, I never became a professional programmer, though that's what I thought I wanted to do uh, as, as a kid. Uh, I ended up uh, uh, in a different uh, career track, still involved in the technology industry. Um but uh, I picked up enough along the way about, you know, computer science in general and things like that, that, uh, you know, coming coming back at it, it was like, OK, I, I think I understand some of the things I was doing wrong before. Like, first of all, I need I need a book on assembly language that starts at the beginning, not at the middle, not at the end. You know, don't assume that I know what an assembler is or what one to have or, you know, <laughs> so it's like, OK, you know, find the right book, which, which of course, back in the 80s, you know, you're kind of stuck with what you had. Uh, there was one book in the school library on assembly language, and you know that one did not start at the beginning. So, um, <laughs> but with the resources of the internet, it was like, okay, uh, uh, I know what I'm looking for, and I found it. It was called "Using Assembly Language" by uh, Randy Hyde, uh, and uh, it's focused. Uh, you, you know, you guys probably are familiar with the book. You know, it's the Liza compiler. Did I pronounce that right? I always, I always, I, I know it's spelled one way and pronounced the other way. So hopefully, I did. Um, but uh, having it being designed for a specific uh, assembler and having examples written for that assembler, uh, I was like, this is perfect, because then I can just type in the examples as I go, uh, see the results, learn as, learn in the process, and uh, that's exactly what that book was laid out to do, and I went through it cover to cover. That gave me most of the foundation that was necessary that as I was going through it. Uh, I was basically just resurrecting the old schematic uh, from years ago in my head, uh, of, of the tile engine. And, you know, it's like, okay, I know all languages. It comes down to flow control and IO and, you know, things like that. So I'm just trying to put the puzzle pieces together, uh, on, on how to get from point A to, uh, to point B. And, uh, you know, the book was great, you know, in, in covering a lot of that, uh, necessary foundation. There were a few things that, you know, it didn't, it didn't get into graphics at all. Uh, it uh, didn't talk at all about, oh, by the way, if you want to actually make a game on the scale of the RPGs of, of, of the 80s, you're going to need this thing called a bootloader to kick DOS out of memory so you actually have enough memory to do anything. It didn't talk anything about that. You know, there were a couple of panic moments I, uh, that I had after I sort of jumped off the, the plank uh, into the project thinking like, okay, I know what I need to do. I can do this. All right. And I spend, you know, investing a whole bunch of time on it. And then I start to find these, Oh, what about this? <laughs> you know, kind of moment. So I found myself spelunking on, you know, the news groups trying to figure out, you know, okay, uh, bootloader, what is that? How do I do that? And I, I, I just sort of tracked down snippets and bits and pieces. And I, I kind of had a general idea of like, all right, so there's gotta be a point when the computer's booting that the ROM does some kind of a handoff to some code on the disk drive. And I couldn't find anywhere that said where that was. 
Uh, but I had kind of gotten into boot zero a bit and, you know, knew enough to be dangerous. And there was a point where I just took this leap. I thought, I'm going to try track zero, sector zero, and just see what happens. <laughs> and, and sure enough, you know, that was the, the launch point uh, that, that the ROM was looking for in the floppy. And then it kind of all, you know, came together. And I eventually was able to actually put together a custom bare metal bootloader, free up 125K out of the 128, essentially, just leaving you know, the, uh, the DOS RWTS, uh, you know, being loaded into memory and, um, was really, uh, was really thrilled when all that came together. And on the graphic side, the other major missing piece, I tracked down, oh, some old book. Um, I, I think I actually have it right here. <laughs> it's, uh, Pyro's Graphics and Animation Using Assembly Language by Leonard, uh, Malikin. I, I, I got it, uh, through some rare used book source. Uh, it, it was, you know, most books are, are out there on PDF at this point. This was the one that wasn't, and this was the one graphics book that I could kind of tell, you know, from the table of contents that it's like, this really kind of covers what it, what I need. It was designed for arcade games, but uh, it seemed to, like it had a good layout of the concept. So I, I, I went and got that book, and uh, largely through reading that and some other online resources was able to figure out exactly the mess I had gotten myself into with the high-risk screen with the crazy <laughs> interleaving and all of that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, at the same time, other people had been through these challenges and it was, uh, you know, not that bad once I had, you know, all the information resources to, you know, put together the lookup tables and, uh, you know, so forth. If, if, uh, if I had been left on my own to come up with that solution, it would have been a lot more crazy, I'm sure. Yeah, you anticipated my next question there, which was, uh, yeah, the elephant in the room on the Apple II, of course, yeah, is the high-res graphics. I mean, 6502 assembly, you know, you can learn that pretty quick. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, and on most computers, you then go on to learn about the sprite hardware or whatever. But yeah, on the Apple II, it's like, okay, here's this crazy morass of bits that make no sense uh, for drawing graphics. Good luck. Bye. Okay, bye. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That 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 is, uh, I think many people have come out of that, that realization. And it's, and even after you, you know, you kind of understand it, you figure it out and you can produce the results on the screen, then the issue becomes scalability. You know, how, how do mm -hmm. I, you know, develop a method to be able to actually do something useful without spending the rest of my life? And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I did it on graph paper, you know, a few times, uh, you know, just to, well, I mean, what else was I going to do? And, and, uh, then it's like, you know, like, okay, there's, there's, I've got modern tools at my disposal. I, my, my mission here was never to, you know, reduplicate the 1980s development process and, you know, sit down <laughs> at, uh, you know, the actual physical Apple II and code all this. You know, I'm using a cross assembler, which, I'm, you know, probably would be assumed. So I had no qualms at all about like, okay, uh, how, how can I use modern tools to somehow just cut through this? And uh, so I, I very quickly created the magic scroll of cheating, uh, as I came to call it, <laughs> uh, a very elaborate Excel spreadsheet with uh, tons of formulas. And, you know, it's basically I've got a grid and I turn on, you know, the uh, the pixels, you know, with a one and a, and a zero. And it does all the binary conversions and the hex conversions and rolls it all into a, uh, a hex table that I just simply copy and paste into the cross assembler source code. And, uh, I, I can, I can put a tile up online from, from at, once the art is done. Actually, if I have a concept for the art, uh, I can actually make the tile in the spreadsheet and have it on screen, all told probably in about five minutes. Um, 
That sounds like a pretty nifty spreadsheet. Uh, maybe you should uh, share that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. I, I posted it uh, once or twice in uh, uh, various forums uh, when you know graphics topics came up. But uh, at some point, I need to make it more prominently uh, visible for sure, and uh, I'll definitely do that. Yeah, yeah, and of course, the kicker is, as you know, as you know, no doubt discovered uh, is that. Uh, the minimum performance bar on the Apple II is even even in assembly language, you know, if you just do the naive thing of, you know, dividing and modding by seven to figure out which bit is which pixel and skipping the high bits and yada, yada, yada. If you just sort of do all that the naive way, even in assembly language, the end result is far too slow to be usable. Right. So there's, then you have to go through this process of, you have to, there's a minimum amount of cleverness required just to get barely enough speed to be able to do something <laughs> kind of yep. usable. A- absolutely. And uh, it comes down to cloning clock cycles, you in, in the you know the graphics engine, uh, the tile graphics engine development stage, uh, it invariably you know just like you're describing, it turns out you know too slow, and it's like okay, I got to shave clock cycles off of here somewhere, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I, I don't remember how many times I, I went back through it, you know, doing it before getting to you know the desired level of uh, of speed, but uh, it was it was it was a few <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned your development process there. So you are cross-developing. Uh, what's your build environment like? Are you on Mac or PC? Are you using like CA65 or? Uh, I, I am kind of using a blend. I have uh, a Mac and a, a PC. Uh, the uh, actual cross-assembler uh, is on uh, a PC. It's uh, uh, Spasm, S-B-A-S-M, uh, is what I ended up uh, going with. I did a quick interview of uh, <laughs> cross-assemblers at one point in time. And uh, ended up picking that one, and uh, I've got it on a uh, like I said on, on a PC that 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 was just uh, I never did learn learned any programming in the OSX environment essentially, and I had dabbled some in the uh, the modern languages on the PC, uh, so that's kind of how that came about. Uh, and then I also have the Mac, and what I end up uh, basically doing just because of the way my home office is, is set up essentially is uh, uh, I RDP from my Mac into the PC. Uh, and, and then on the Mac desktop, uh, I can have various other resources uh, set up on, you know, uh, my large monitor uh, and uh, the uh, RDP window, you know, where I want it. And um, for a variety of reasons, that works out a lot better, uh, you know, just from like a desktop management standpoint for me than having everything all on, on one machine. So that's, uh, that's how I'm rolling. Interesting. Getting back to when you said that you announced this, um, what sort of response did you expect, and what did you get? Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's a great question. Um, as to what kind of response to expect, uh, we really weren't sure. Uh, we, you know, just kind of from seeing the number of people posting to forums out there, uh, you know, our, our instinct was that okay, you know, we're we're, we're going to get some responses. There's going to be you know, some, you know, people interested. Uh, and uh, after uh, posting, uh, you know, the initial announcement, I would say that uh, uh, we definitely got a lot more response than, uh, you know, than was expected. Uh, and very positive response to um, in the entirety of time that we've been doing this, and we've done a lot of announcements and things, if we've gotten a negative comment, it's been maybe one or two. And even those, it was kind of hard to tell if it was negative or not. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, hard to say. Uh, but, uh, you know, in that first round, you know, everything, all comments were just overwhelmingly positive, And there were a lot of them. And that was really encouraging. 
you know, it, it's, uh, you know, just really fun uh, to interact with the community, to, you know, share with the community, hear the community's ideas. We've gotten some great feedback from people uh, and uh, incorporated that into the game. Um, and actually, one of our uh, our team members, uh, Bill uh, uh, Gigi, he's uh, uh, a Hollywood uh, professional graphics animator. The way we got hooked up is, you know, we, we held a, uh, a graphics contest uh, back last summer you know, to the community say, Hey, you know, submit, submit some, some tiles, you know, we'd love to put them in the game. And, uh, he participated in the contest and, uh, won the contest <laughs> and, <laughs> as you might imagine. And the contest ended and, you know, he just kept creating stuff and we're like, okay, well, great. You know, eventually, you know, we kind of, you know, talked and you want to join the team? Well, sure. You know, <laughs> so we kind of got together and, and, uh, you know, he had, you know, fortunately had, uh, uh, some some assembly language experience from back in the '80s had done some programming, uh, you know, back then trying to create some games and uh, hadn't done any of it for you know like 30 years. But you know, he was able to take this modern uh, knowledge of of graphics and, and art and animation and sort of filter that through the lens of you know while he was rusty, you know, he kind of knows what's going on with the crazy graphics color rules and <laughs> things like that on the Apple and you know we've been able to really effectively, uh, you know, collaborate with each other. So uh, I, I think that's that's probably the, you know, in, in a way, roundabout sort of way, the most shining example of, you know, community input that's just kind of rolled right into the project. And uh, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, that's been a really great all, all around. Every, every, everything with interacting with the community has just been really a lot of fun. Well, it's really great to hear. Absolutely. Are we going to see you at Kansas Fest this year? Uh, yes, yes, uh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I will be there, uh, representing, uh, 6502 workshop and, uh, uh, Andy Malloy has, uh, uh, told me that it's very likely that the Knox Archaea session application will be approved, <laughs> which is great news, uh, uh, for us. And, uh, there might be riots if, it, if it's not. <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm trying to incite any, but <laughs> so, uh, so that's looking good. We're planning on, uh, if it all works out, we're planning on a gameplay demo, uh, a behind the scenes programming discussion, uh, as well as, you know, no K fest, uh, RPG, uh, you know, a session would be complete without a special announcement. Uh, there, there of will course. be one of those, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, this will, uh, as I think, you know, will be my first K-Fest and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to being there and, uh, learning from people and putting some, uh, faces to the names and, uh, and voices of people. Sure. So then, then the, the, the corollary to that is, uh, will you have a session where you have a dance battle with the Lawless Legends guys? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that is, uh, unknown. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see we shall see how this goes <laughs> i think i'd pay for i'd pay extra for tickets just for that second, but, um on a slightly more serious note um you had mentioned sort of the rich storyline and, and the the development that's going into that portion of the game um without giving away too many secrets of course can you tell us kind of what how that's going and and maybe where where your inspiration is coming from what you're looking for that kind of stuff Sure. Um, I would say that, uh, boy, I mean, from an inspiration standpoint, it's kind of just coming from a lifetime of, of, of experiences and, uh, uh, reading fantasy books, playing fantasy games, just thinking way too much about fantasy. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, 
I, I can't, uh, uh, you know, even add up the a number of hours that I spent in junior high and high school doodling in my notebook about, you know, fantasy RPG games that I should have mm-hmm. yep. spent paying attention in class. But, um, yeah, so, so there, there, there's, I, I'm finding that there's a lot more to draw on than I thought. And it just, it just kind of seems to flow out. And so I'm really looking forward to the actual building of the storyline into the game, you know, stage right now, I'm kind of like making notes on the side while, while we're finishing off the game engine, um, is we're really following the, the, the Lord British, uh, RPG development method that he's talked about, uh, in, uh, a number of books and, and, and in a number of interviews and, uh, which basically goes along the lines of, you know, don't, don't build the engine to fit the story, uh, you know, build the best engine that you can and then, you know, tell the best story that you can from that engine. And uh, mm-hmm. it really, I think, showed in the quality of, of the Ultimate Games and how smooth they were. And so that was a decision mm-hmm. early on that, you know, we're, we're going to follow that, you know, obviously successful method. You know, so as a result, I keep it kind of loose, you know, in terms of the story and, and ideas uh, while, while I'm trying to, you know, like I said, I kind of doodle on the side with them. Uh, I keep it pretty big picture, though, so that, uh, you know, we stay uh, flexible. Uh, uh, back to your question, though, it, to, to try to take some kind of a stab at a, at, at a by a way of an example uh, of how the storyline, uh, the rich storyline would integrate with, you know, say, like uh, combat. Um, you know, what we're kind of going to have in mind there is that uh, combat scenarios sort of on their face as a standalone activity uh, is, is going to be very, you know, rich in and of itself, you know, with, uh, variety of, uh, tactics and, uh, skills and, you know, it's a skill-based game, uh, so you can kind of, your characters are who you want them to, they are, they learn by what they're doing, uh, and then there's special skills like critical hit and dodge and, uh, you know, just a variety of, of, of tactical complexities that will, we hope, make combat a really rewarding experience just, uh, in and of itself. And then at the same time, uh, integrating it with the storyline so that, uh, you know, certain combat scenarios, you may not be able to, you know, just win them, you know, uh, through raw tactics and, and uh, battle strategy. Uh, you, you may need to learn something about your opponent that uh, you're going to find out through, uh, you know, various quests or side quests and, uh, you know, that that's going to be, you know, crucial potentially and being able to win certain combat battles. The, the hope is that, you know, that links the story in combat in such a way that, uh, you know, we keep the, you know, the whole game a very engaging experience and, you know, uh, uh, don't have any sort of, uh, you know, stagnation, you know, that, uh, you know, develops over time where, you know, combat just kind of becomes annoying. Uh, it may not be avoidable completely, but, uh, we're going to minimize, uh, you know, the the, uh, the the risk of that and make it as interesting as possible. Cool. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the things I think that that really draws people into games um, and sort of makes it a more immersive experience um, is is the the sound effects. You you know you and music. You had mentioned Ultima, and Ultima's you know famous. I think partially for obviously the great game design, but also for, you know, like if you had a mockingboard, it had its own soundtrack and, and battle uh, effects and things like that. What, what sort of work are you putting into that? 
Well, uh, the uh, sound effects are, uh, are are under development. We we have a few completed. They haven't been in any of the uh, uh, the videos uh, that we've released so far, uh, but uh, we do have some uh, that that are working uh, and uh, that that are pretty. We're pretty excited about them in terms of uh, sound effects, and uh, there there will be more coming out on that soon. Uh, as far as the music side of it goes. Um, we are in discussions with somebody right now, uh, uh, a, a prospective new, new team member that, uh, may be getting involved with us on, uh, you know, doing some music, uh, how that's going to be integrated yet on the technology side is, is kind of, uh, you know, to be determined, uh, you know, Mockingboard is certainly a possibility that's out there, but, uh, you know, we, we haven't, uh, we haven't committed to that, you know, path necessarily. For for now, um, suffice it to say that uh, there there's some plans there that that we're working on. Okay, great. Yeah, that's that's really cool stuff. So you mentioned that you were shooting for a blend of kind of open world and linear storytelling. Can you? That's a that can be a really difficult thing to to, to kind of nail in games. What do you have? Sort of some strategies in mind for that, or thoughts on how that's going to be executed? Sure. Um, I think that uh, one 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 key to making it work is going to be uh, to not make it too complicated. For one, we're we're going to kind of dive our, our our toes into that realm uh, carefully, <laughs> and 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 see you know how things work. And if they're going well, we'll do more of it. If they're going less well, you know we'll do less of it. There'll definitely be some of it. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the drivers for that is going to be the, uh, the game state flags that are built into the engine, which are already there and, and hooked up. And, uh, you know, that's going to enable us to make the game aware, uh, you know, for example, of when certain events have occurred and, and therefore, you know, cause uh, the game to react differently because those events have occurred. You know, one tactic that we'll probably use to try to, uh, you know, reduce the, you know, complexity and potential for problems is to maybe cordon off some of the more involved, you know, linear elements into their own, you know, areas. Like maybe there's just a particular area that changes or, you know, reacts differently or there's just something, uh, you know, you know, something about that area, uh, that, that's not linear and that, uh, we, we kind of keep it contained uh, a bit. Uh, that being said, you know, I think it can be expected that, you know, there's probably going to be some interaction with NPCs just throughout the game where because you've, you know, completed this quest or that quest, they know that, you know, for example. But uh, that that's, uh, you know, kind of the 50,000 foot view of that at, at this stage uh, on how we're going to approach that. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like a, a sound strategy. Um, so going back to the community for a second, uh, in addition to sort of drawing on the people of the community, are you also drawing on any of the tools? Like, um, I guess ones that come to mind for me would be like the outlaw editor that Brendan Roberts has put together for Lawless Legends, uh, which is really strong at, uh, editing, you know, pieces of, of artwork and, uh, you know, managing the high bit and, and so on. Um, or something like Buckshot, which is really great for converting, you know, large static images, uh, anything like that? Or are you guys kind of rolling your own with all the tools? Sure. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, on In terms of the uh, uh, on the graphics side with uh, like tile development, uh, we ended up building, you know, our own tools on that before we learned about the Lawless Legends editor. So it was just easier 
uh, to plow ahead. Uh, but it really looks like they put together some, some great stuff there. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really cool. And, and, you know, what, what we did was, you know, we just kind of threw it together for our own use and, uh, you know, what they've done, you know, uh, you know, I just want to highlight, you know, the coolness of it is they actually designed it as a tool for other people to use, which was really great of them to do. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And even theoretically other platforms, they have plans for C64 and uh, other things. So sort of related to that, do you guys have cross-platform visions at all for this uh, for this product or other products? Uh, it's a possibility. Uh, you know, we're, we're definitely focused on, you know, getting this game done, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, the team and I are really excited uh, about what we're doing and about continuing what we're doing, uh, you know, if everything uh, goes well, uh, you know, with Nox or Chaos. Uh, we would love to, uh, you know, then uh, sponsor uh, or 6502 Workshop sponsor future productions of, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, ports of Nox or Chaos, uh, expansion packs to Nox or Chaos, uh, or uh, sequels. <laughs> you know, uh, there, there's there's a variety of, of ideas that have been, uh, you know, kicked around there. And while, you know, I suspect we might all need a little bit of a, a break to go, you know, play some games for a while after Xerchaeus <laughs> is done, uh, I, I think that it's very likely, uh, you know, you'll see us doing more things in, in, in the future. And uh, in, in ports to other platforms is certainly, uh, you know, a good possibility uh, on that list. Cool. Well, and I guess we would be remiss if we didn't ask the $64,000 question and feel free to decline to answer this as the Lawless <laughs> Legends team always does. Uh, do you have a completion date in mind? Yeah, well, we're being different on, on that. We're, we're throwing out, you know, completion dates and uh, they may not, you know, be accurate, but, you know, we're, we're at least, keep, we're keep, we look at it and say, we're going to keep everybody in the loop on what we're shooting for. You know, we're, uh, we're shooting for the end of this year uh, and... You know, I, I think that's definitely possible. It's also possible that it, you know, might overshoot, uh, you know, but uh, that's 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 what we're doing or that's what we're shooting for. And uh, we'll, we'll keep uh, everyone updated as uh, as we know more. You will know more. <laughs> awesome. We'll keep talking about it on the show. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Are you expecting to have a price tag on this or is it going to be a free thing? Uh, it is. We decided from the start that uh, Nox Archaeus will be available as a free download, uh, and uh, there, there's no no question about that. Uh, additionally, uh, we are working on uh, putting together the plans to have a collector's box edition, and oh. uh, the collector's box edition will be, uh, we hope, really awesome. You know, printed manual. Uh, uh, professional artwork and the manual and the box cover, uh, cloth or some kind of a fabric map, you know, a few trinkets in there, bringing back any memories. I was thinking is like, well, you know, we're, we're, we're going to go for the whole experience here. And, uh, you know, that would be something we would make available, uh, for, for purchase, uh, for those that would be interested in, you know, that kind of, kind of experience. But we want everybody to be able to play the game. You know, this, this is a really, you know, uh, uh, something we would like to see, uh, we would like to see the development of retro RPGs, uh, Apple II RPGs in particular, uh, have a resurgence. And, you know, it kind of feels like that's happening a little bit. You know, there's two <laughs> so far <laughs> in the Apple II world. Uh, there, there are others in, 
uh, other communities, uh, unknown realms uh, in the uh, the Commodore uh, 64 world, uh, and and they've reached uh, you know even beyond that uh, a little bit, uh, but they developed it for the for the Commodore. I'm not sure if you guys have heard about that one, and uh, so it seems like there's a little bit of a resurgence happening, and uh, we're hoping that uh, you know are doing this and. Uh, you know, the guys at Wildless Legends doing doing their project. And, you know, hopefully that encourages other people to do this. And so, uh, you know, we, we really want to uh, encourage, you know, that in the community and make sure that everybody has the opportunity to play the game. Visit our website, you know, ask us questions. <laughs> that, well, we're, we're trying to, you know, post technical content uh, as we go along with the gameplay content, try to be a resource for, uh, 8-bit and, and, uh, especially Apple II, uh, you know, RPGs, uh, because I, I have yet to find a book, you know, on the subject <laughs> as much as mm-hmm. I've been searching my whole life for one, you know, kind of a thing. And, um, so, uh, so that's what we're trying to do there. Awesome. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that there's no book on writing Apple II RPGs. I mean, I feel like the, you know, this is the game genre that the Apple II was really uniquely suited for and really excelled at, you know, uh, lots of memory, fast disk drives, and kind of crappy graphics. You know, it's sort of the the recipe for uh, for big epic RPGs more than you know arcade games or other things. But uh, yeah, it just always seems to have been a black art that a few companies mastered and then never told anybody about. And exactly. now maybe th- those those programmers all died or won't talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is. Uh, you know, it's the, it's 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 the kind of information that, in a certain sense. Uh, you know, I feel like it was in danger of, of becoming extinct. There's so little out there about it. Mm-hmm. You know, the closest that I ever found were uh, some some books on developing arcade games, and uh, the, mm-hmm. you know, the graphics mm-hmm. book I mentioned before. Uh, you know, that's an art. It's 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 a graphics book, but it's also focused on developing an arcade game. And and you know, that's great. You know, that's a wonderful resource to be out there. And I just thought, boy, it's too bad that. You know, nobody ever, you know, put something like that together uh, on the RPG side for something with uh, with tile graphics, but uh, it didn't seem, you know, really seem to happen. And, uh, you know, somebody doesn't document it, you know, eventually <laughs> everybody will be gone that ever remembered or, or the people that do remember will forget. So, uh, you know, we, we certainly have not accomplished that yet in terms of, you know, anything approaching full documentation on the process. But uh, we've gotten it started uh, with some of the blog posts that we've done uh, on our, uh, 6502 workshop website and we'll continue to do that. Awesome. Yeah. I think most of those books focused on arcade games and there are a number of great books on that probably because that's a lot easier to condense into book form. Yeah. Um, and you can just focus on the graphics then and you get something sort of usable at the end of it. But, uh, yeah, RPGs are much more, a problem of, of data structures and architecture and, you know, you're dealing with scripting and you're dealing with big, you know, data objects and so on. And, uh, those types of things are, you know, very easy to do in C and very, very hard to do in 6502 <laughs> assembly language. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there really uh, are some parts of it that I, I agree would just be incredibly difficult to, you know, document, and uh, some points that are just so dependent on, uh, you know, the the details of what you, what you're trying to accomplish, and uh, how you know how much memory are, are, are do you have available to do like one specific routine, let alone module, you know, can create some hair pulling kinds of decisions, especially like the midpoint of the game, you know, uh, or early on, 
It's like, hey, I got plenty of memory, no problem, I can optimize it later. And towards the end of the game, you kind of know what you got left and you're solving that in the middle of the game. It's kind of like, oh, I have no idea. I'm just guessing here. <laughs> <laughs> so that would it would be hard to document that decision-making process. But there were, there were a few times I remember just kind of taking a leap of faith, thinking like, okay, there is a very real risk that I might spend, you know, weeks you know, coding myself into a corner and having to scrap the whole thing. So <laughs> that's the truth. So uh, you mentioned you were two members originally, and you're now up to four. Uh, can you sort of virtually introduce us to the rest of the team? Uh, sure, sure. Actually, uh, a five. You know, we're we're growing like uh, weeds here. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that was one of, uh, if not my most important bullet points uh, that I wanted to make sure to hit was uh, to thank the team. <laughs> thank you, uh, everyone, for everything, uh, you know, that, that you've done and are doing and will do. And, you know, pulling this all together has been one of the most enjoyable parts of the process for me is, uh, is working with all of you. Uh, and uh, by way of uh, introductions, uh, Mike Reimer is uh, the project, uh, my project co-founder. Uh, and as I mentioned, he, he and I go back to, uh, playing games as, uh, as kids and, uh, you know, uh, reconceived the, uh, idea of uh, writing a game here in the modern era. And, uh, uh, we got it rolling and, uh, uh, Bill Geege came, joined the team next. Uh, and, uh, he's, uh, the, uh, the graphics animator, uh, that I mentioned and a, uh, colleague of his, uh, Robert Padovan. Uh, uh, joined uh, shortly thereafter, and he's also a uh, professional graphics animator. So the two of them uh, are really uh, they're 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 nailing it on uh, the uh, the eight bit eight bit graphics front, just churning out uh, you know wonderful uh, intricate uh, you know eight bit uh, static and animated tiles. Uh, and then most recently, uh, we've been working with uh, Gordon McKay. Uh, he is a I don't know if this is the right term, but an out game <laughs> uh, graphics artist uh, in uh, the UK. And uh, he's working on uh, basically images for us uh, to use on the box cover and in the manuals and things like that. We've uh, actually tweeted out a couple samples. Uh, that's that's the only medium so far that uh, we've released any of that is uh, out on Twitter. We're, we're at uh, 6502 Workshop. Uh, so uh, that's... Uh, uh, anyone that wants to follow us there can can see a little bit of Gordon's work, and it and it's really uh, I, I I've just been blown away by uh, how good a job that he's doing on that. I can't wait, you know, to see it uh, actually in uh, in print. And uh, then, as mentioned, there's somebody we're talking to about sound too, so uh, he he might be he might be number six if that works out. Fantastic. Um, well, I think that's all the questions I had. Mike, did you have any more? No, I just uh, just want I just wanted to say that uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to to playing this game and to uh, seeing your Kansas Fest so I can throw my money at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I am looking forward to seeing uh, uh, both of you as well and uh, uh, many others in the Apple II community. And uh, Mike, appreciate your your. Uh, uh, enthusiasm and offer in advance of, uh, you know, backing us there. Uh, we very much appreciate that. Uh, I actually have, uh, one last, uh, announcement, uh, that, uh, I have to, uh, to make here today, if that's okay with you. Um, mm -hmm. it's just something that, that I think is, uh, is just really cool and exciting, uh, is, uh, fairly recently, uh, Cracker, uh, Cucumba has, uh, uh, temporarily, uh, switched sides. 
and agreed to code the copy protection scheme for Nox Archaeist. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fantastic. Uh, we will be working together to integrate copy protection checks uh, into the game engine, uh, you know, which will deliver a challenging and entertaining cracking experience, uh, you know, kind of designed <laughs> to be a game, you know, within the game, you know, if you will. So we, we look forward to having a lot of fun with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure 4am will very much enjoy playing that game within a game. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, I uh, have been thinking that myself, that, 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 that should be, <laughs> we should see some interesting, uh, uh, you know, tweets and, uh, and posts about that at some point. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Hopefully there'll be some write-ups that come out of that that the rest of us will enjoy reading. I hope so. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Mark. Uh, absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I really uh, appreciate it and, and appreciate, uh, you know, all the kind uh, things that you've had to say about us, uh, you know, so far. Uh, hopefully our luck will hold. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, th th thanks again for, for having me on the show. For sure. Thank you, Mark. Hi, this is Steve Wozniak, and you're listening to Open Apple. All right, well, thanks again, Mark. I thoroughly enjoyed that. That was a great conversation about the upcoming Knox Archaeist. I will certainly be uh, saving my my uh, pennies for that one. Yeah, me too. Can't wait. Yeah. All right, well, we got a little bit of news, not a ton, because our recording schedule has been a little borked up here, but uh, let's let's get into that. Yeah, we're all waiting for a soft talk anyway, so let's get through this news. <laughs> may be old, but there's still news. Apple 2 News. All right, our first item uh, comes from uh, listener Tom Porter, and he uh, wrote to let us know that uh, the Dogfighters of Mars 2 official demo is now available. And uh, mm. so, yeah, I sent us a download link for that, which we will have, of course, in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the... Uh, uh, sequel to the Dogfighters of Mars, which was a really cool uh, double O res uh, action game that Tom had written. And uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, he's been doing some fun things with uh, with double O res and uh, he's been been up to quite a bit, actually. So we'll talk more about that when we get to the uh, feedback section. But uh, yeah, Dogfighters of Mars, give it a shot. Yep, can't wait. <laughs> Next up. Uh, oh, yes. We talked a while back about the uh, Manila Gear 2 Sonic card. Uh, so this is this the little brother of the 4 Sonic card. Is that what this is? Yeah, this is the uh, the two channel version of the Quadraphonic uh, 4 Sonic. Um, and I don't know if, yeah, it looks like they're, they did make an announcement uh, on ManilaGear.com. But you can also sign up there uh, for their announcements and you'll get emails right in your inbox, which is how I got this. And it's also very cool um, that they're able to announce that, that they are um, now working with Reactive Micro. So you can buy their products directly through that store as well. Awesome. Yeah, and it looks like this will uh, retail for uh, US $69 at Reactive Micro. And I think it's available right now if you want it. Awesome. All right, well, we will certainly link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, and of course, uh, as we've talked about already, Kansas Vest registration is now open. Uh, early registration as of this recording is still open. So, uh, and of course, yeah, as we said, it's limited to 100 this year. So uh, you will definitely want to get in on that while you still can. It should be a really good year this year, I think. And let's see, speaking of conferences, uh, WASFest is happening here. Uh, what's the story here, Mike? 
Well, huh, we like to talk about WazFest, and they like to talk about us talking about WazFest, <laughs> um, which is really awesome. We've uh, most recently questioned their numbering scheme, and of course, they've come up with a, a snappy answer. But um, they also announced that uh, WazFest PR number six will be happening on April 29th in uh, Sydney, Australia. So if you're in that part of the world, I highly recommend you uh attend if, if at all possible and of course you know we'd we here in the in the states would love to hear about it if you go yeah for sure yeah people who go take pictures and write about it and let us know so uh mike i'm gonna give you this next item because uh, i have no idea what this is must be yours yeah uh <laughs> um the uh 8-bit bunch is what they're calling themselves they this i think is uh happening over at call apple have announced that Light Cycle 3D uh, has been announced. This is a game that Apple developed along with Lemonade Stand and Brickout, uh, and I guess was supposed to have been released with the original Apple II when it shipped, but was pulled at the last minute by Apple for reasons unknown. Uh, it looks like Bill or somebody over there uh, worked with the developers to uh, unearth the, the original cassette tape, uh, which was then translated over to Floppy and is now available uh, to to download from their website. You can uh, load it up in your your favorite emulator and play now, or um, you know put it on a disc and pop it into your real Apple II. Uh, it looks like the um, probably as as the name would suggest is based on uh, on the Tron game. I just came across this tonight. As a matter of fact, I've, I have the disc image, but have not had a chance to to play it. So um, it's always great to to find some you know new. Uh, unpreserved or or um, title that we thought was lost forever um, and have it available to everybody. So thanks, Bill, and the guys at Call Apple for doing that. Yeah, that's super cool. Makes me uh, makes me think of uh, Modem Wars. Did you ever play Modem Wars? Yes. Yeah, that that you could play with over the modem with two people, and it was basically Tron light cycles, but over the modem. I always thought mm-hmm. that was really neat. Yep, I think this one may be a little bit more primitive than that, but... Uh... Uh, modem wars is pretty primitive i think it was, <laughs> true, it was yeah. just just two colored bars but the fact that you can play uh, yeah. over the modem was pretty amazing that's pretty awesome yeah <laughs> i think that was my very first ever multiplayer sort of network gaming ah. experience that uh, was amazing to my little 12 year old brain <laughs> uh, so uh this this show seems to accidentally have a bit of a tom porter theme uh <laughs> this next item also about tom uh, he's recently released a uh, MIDI to Mockingboard converter, which is pretty cool. Uh, is there a write-up here on uh, Compsys Apple II, Mike? Uh, it, it's pretty brief. Um, he just announces that now you can convert your favorite MIDI files to Mockingboard format so you can play it through your card. Uh, the player disc, he says, has a few samples that you can try out today. It uh, requires an emulator, but the player disc should work just fine on a 2 Plus, 2E, 2C, 2GS. Um, they're working on making some documentation for it, and they're um, they're wanting a uh, community to support this, to allow for future voices, sound fonts, and things like that, and hopefully a huge library of MIDI conversion to that format. Um, he says right now it looks like it's a proprietary or, or at least a unique format. It is not IRQ-driven, so there are some limitations, but they're working on it. Um, there is a thread, again, over at uh, CSA2 uh, where you can download the, the disk image and, um, I guess, and, and participate. Cool. Yeah, that could be a really handy way for people to get music into into Mockingboard uh, games. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe uh, hopefully 6502 Workshop uh, are listening <laughs> to this. <laughs> maybe they can leverage that tool. Okay. All right. Well, that was it for our brief news segment this month. Uh, but we do have one entry in uh, Mike's favorite segment, which is Woos. We like Woos, and we know you do too. It's Woos News. It's Woos. And it's even from you, Quinn. 
<laughs> yeah, how about that? I, I knew I was going to make you so happy when I put this in the notes. <laughs> because I know uh, how much you hate that segment. So. Yeah. <laughs> I like this segment. I just think the name is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, everyone's favorite Steve uh, has uh, been in the news again. And uh, he gave a, an interview of sorts on uh, basically why he likes computers. Uh, what it is that hooked him and how he kind of knew this was going to be his thing. So uh Waz is uh, always delightful and always charming, so uh, give it a watch. A lot of people think, is it destiny? Are you born a certain way? Was I born creative? Was I born an engineer? And I say, no, I think it's just little influences, accidental things you bump through in your life. I stumbled into a journal about digital computer topics, and you didn't find any books in a bookstore that talked about computers. They didn't exist. I told myself as I was reading this journal, very young, I said, I don't know what a computer is, but I know this is part of it. This is what leads to it. And this is going to be my passion for life. It's going to be the most interesting thing I do. I would work late at night in my bedroom, on the floor, on sheets of paper, drawing computer designs. I taught myself how to do it. I went four days and nights without sleep. All these ideas come together, condensing the parts, making it so small and so low cost. In my head, popped the entire formula for an affordable, useful computer. Computer, it gives a person a tool, a tool that they can express themselves and get more done and be more creative and be more in their life than they could be without it. I just felt, oh, this is exactly what I wanted for the world. I was happy to be an engineer. I want to go in the laboratory. I want to build hardware and software that does neat things for people. I know what makes me happy, what I feel is really me, Steve Wozniak, and I'm glad. I'm real lucky. Right. Uh, let's uh, let's do a little bit of feedback, Mike, before we dive into our next large segment. I've got just a couple of items here. Okay. Always love feedback. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. Uh, first one I've got is from uh, listener Brian. Uh, he says, I love the page-by-page -page description of the old Soft Talk magazine. Your discussions of the advertisement and tracking down present status via Google Maps was a hoot. Well, thank you, Brian. I am inclined to agree. Uh, next email I've got is from listener Foo. That's actually what it says in the name field. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we were talking about uh, uh, Temple of Apshe, uh, the ads in uh, Soft Talk magazine from a couple months ago, and... Uh, they were advertising that it uh, comes with sticks and stones, and we had no idea what that is. So uh, listener Foo writes in to tell us, you mentioned sticks and stones and wondered if automated simulations also created it. It was one of the early games published by Steve Jackson in the micro game oh, series. Yeah, okay. yeah. Like Apple II games, this series was published in little Ziploc bags. I never played sticks and stones, but my friends and I spent uncounted hours playing some other games in this series. Uh, the simple RPGs, Melee, Wizard, and Death Test. So, uh, yeah, that's that's great information. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and yeah, I think Death I Test could be possibly the name of every RPG. <laughs> All right. And the last but not least uh, is uh, the email I referenced earlier from uh, listener Tom Porter. And uh, so he wrote in and gave us a bunch of in interesting stuff to, to look into here. So we talked about Dogfighters of Mars 2, the demo, which we will link to. And uh, he also mentioned that uh, now anyone who follows the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group uh, knows that Tom's been very active working on uh, sound things. 
So uh, he's written, uh, he's been working on a sound engine uh, that allows, uh, in theory, multitasking for one-bit background music and sound effects during gameplay. And uh, uses, leverages the extra 64K, the upper bank, on the 2 or 2C. And uh, apparently it uh, can be integrated into any existing game engine with minimal impact uh, on performance. So that sounds really cool. I haven't uh, looked into that myself yet, but uh, I would definitely be uh, curious to know the technical deets there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, and he gives us a list of uh, three other uh, small games that I, I think he's been working on that have this use this sound engine. And I think he's also been uh, yeah, he's been modifying other people's games as well to include sound. He's got some links here. Uh, and he links us to a uh, promo video for this engine on YouTube. So we'll link to that as well. Uh, and uh, he's sort of speaking on behalf of Nespite Labs, uh, which is, I guess, his company that's producing all of this work. And uh, he's uh, got some big things in the pipeline. He wants us to let him know he's working on more uh, double low-res stuff. Uh, he's got a port of a Vectrex game into double low-res. Wow. And uh, yeah, so there's there's lots more coming from, from the fine folks at Nespite Labs. So thanks, Looking Tom, for writing to in. Yeah, good stuff. I like double low-res. Mm-hmm. It's just so darn charming. <laughs> got that perfect balance of colors and pixels that aren't too big to be comically ridiculous but still <laughs> still still quite chunky and charming yes uh all right well that's all the feedback i have uh, did you have anything mike well uh it's only been a couple of weeks since we uh last recorded and um even less than that of course since we released it and i don't think people have had time to find all my mistakes yet so i don't have any apologies <laughs> this month uh so let's uh let's move on to the soft talk all right yeah it turns out uh, to avoid making mistakes uh, just don't say much that's there you right. go. Turns out to be the secret. Or just keep talking, and by the time people figure out you've made a mistake, you've already moved on. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, by the time this comes out, everyone will have forgot. Right. All right. So, uh, yeah, let's jump into our uh, new and exciting and controversial segment, the uh, <laughs> Soft Talk Magazine Flashback. And uh, this this month we're talking about uh, eps- uh, issue number four, which is the Holiday Gift Guide. So, uh, yeah, you'll have to project yourself into the holiday season, despite the fact that it's April. Uh, and, uh, yeah, follow along with us. Yeah, so this is for December 1980, and, of course, it's all about the gift guides. Um, and there's a lot of gift suggestions in here, I think. Yes. If I bought everything that they suggested, I would have really, really, really have – well, my dad would have gone broke. <laughs> um, this issue is a little bit shorter, maybe. It looks like it's um, a total of, like, 36 or 38 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other ones were up to 48. Um, and we hope that this won't take as long maybe because, you know, we're starting to see some repeats and ads and stuff. So we're not going to cover that again, but, um, but first, uh, the ever popular contest and contest winners. So Mm -hmm. it is here where they announced that that there were 13 correct entries, uh, among 1,381 submissions. That's, that's a pretty low number, (laughs) but, uh, this was, this was the one for the October contest where they were counting all the apples mentioned in, in the October soft talk. Yes. I was very excited to see the results of the Apple counting contest. Right. Uh, now, did they actually come up with a number? Uh, no, I don't see an actual list here. They, uh, Interestingly enough, they broke it down by page. So uh, I guess because that's easier to verify your own edition, I guess, because they, uh, yeah, they, they offer it up in a way that readers can mm. compare against their own numbers and see where they went wrong. So they have a breakdown of how many instances of Apple there were on each page uh, in in the magazine. So, uh, but I don't actually see it. But I mean, you could actually just total them up yourselves yeah. if, we, if you weren't lazy like us. And... Yes. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm not going to do that, but someone definitely <laughs> could. 
Theoretically, someone could definitely do that. Right. So I guess they used a random number generator out of the uh, 13 correct entries to pick the winner. And that was uh, Lawrence Landa of Brooklyn, New York. K.W. Park of Cary, Illinois, uh, got second place in Yarlin's Stickies. Hmm. All right. Stickles. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> of Glendale, uh, Arizona was was third. The prizes that were offered, of the prizes that were offered, Landa chose Magic Window from Artsky uh, mm-hmm. as his prize. Uh, Park had asked for D.C. Hayes' Micromodem 2, um, but instead it looks like earned copies of Goblins by Programma and Haunted House by uh, Adventure International. I don't know if that's an even trade there. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Stickles had asked for Magic Window as if he had won first place. Uh, instead, uh, won either Goblins or Haunted House. He didn't say which one he took. So <laughs> um, that's that contest. Now, on to the next one. Uh, this one's called uh, Oracle 81, and it looks like um, well, what's going on here? There's there's a lot that they're asking you. <laughs> yeah, this is a strange one. So uh, just before we go into that, I'll throw out that uh, mm. uh, Magic Window would have been a pretty great prize because, you know, this being 1980, we're pre-80 column cards here. So uh, Magic oh, Window yeah. was uh, was kind of the, the hot thing, I imagine, at the time for doing uh, serious word processing on the limited 40-column screen. Uh, that was a cool piece of software. Yep. Uh, so yeah, this new contest appears to just be a bunch of trivia, um, <laughs> and they want you to guess at a whole bunch of things that are going to be happening in the coming uh, months. So they want you to guess the outcome of the Rose Bowl and the Super Bowl and the Academy Awards and the Indianapolis 500 and the closing price of Apple stock and a bunch of other random things. <laughs> uh, and I guess whoever gets closest uh, wins. Uh, it's, this is an unusual one. It's not especially related to, to Apple or the magazine. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not seeing anything on. Maybe they're hoping that um, I don't know that you you will use your Apple to help you nail down the prediction. <laughs> it seems other than the, the closing stock price, which you know, I mean, anybody's guess. But yeah, yeah. odd. So I'm sort of torn on whether I care about the results of this one. <laughs> yeah, I could take this one or leave it. Uh, I feel some of the previous contests were sort of clever ways to engage you more with the magazine. Um, but this one just feels a little bit random. I don't know. Thrown together at the last minute. Maybe. <laughs> so uh, moving along to the open discussion column uh, where users are writing in and frequently ranting and saying colorful things. Uh, <laughs> this, there was some interesting discussion. Uh, and so last month or previous months, they'd been talking about software piracy. And I think we talked about that as well. And uh, one letter that stood out to me was uh, uh, one of the users draws uh an analogy with uh, mainframe software where piracy was also a big problem. And uh, his uh, his thesis is that uh, copy protection on uh, microcomputer software is, is probably a waste of time since you can't really protect things anyway. And they had the same problem on mainframes and their solution was to start licensing software instead. Uh, which makes sense because a big company is has something that you is something you can sue. So if they violate their license, you can go after them legally, whereas you can't sue, you know, 100,000 individual software users uh, that are out there. So it wouldn't work for Microsoft. Uh, what's, what was interesting to me about that is that we've come full circle on that. So we nowadays, we do exactly that, right? We license all, per, all software now is moving in that direction. So, you know, you don't get to own Photoshop anymore. You know, you, you, pretty soon you won't get to own Visual Studio anymore. Like all your big software packages, uh, you have to rent them and subscribe to them and basically lease them. Uh, which is, you know, maddening to those of us that grew up in the age when you got to own stuff. But it uh, seems like those days are numbered. 
Well, it does, I think, uh, present a bit of a quandary for people like Jason Scott, who are all about the preservation of, of this sort of thing. How do you preserve something that's on somebody else's servers that they can just shut off whenever they want? You know, yeah, is, is the only is the only you know, evidence that these things ever existed going to be in you know screenshots and YouTube videos? And, and yeah. that may be the case, and that would be sad. Yeah, it would be, and that's a uh, server authoritative software design is a real cancer on PC gaming, modern PC gaming. I mean, virtually every PC game now you can't play it without an internet connection and the server being up, and so very frequently you can't play your hundred dollar game because they're having server problems or whatever, or they decide to shut the server down. Of course, which has been happening a lot, and it's become a a, a sport to to watch these these new games roll out and in the first week, you know, the servers crash because the yeah. and people are irate, you know, irate forum posters that they can't play the games that they paid for because, you know, the company that set this up uh, didn't, didn't, ex- didn't plan for the, the um, infrastructure and the bandwidth to, to keep everything up and running. You know, I, I remember, I think uh, recently, what was it? Maxis or whoever publishes EA publishes uh, SimCity Now they, they post what SimCity four and, People couldn't play it for weeks because of the server problems and, and, and the bugs just getting connected. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's I get why companies do it, but it does seem to place a lot of burden on on people to – you really got to want to play these games to put up with this stuff sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's pretty openly hostile to users. Yeah, that would say for sure, that whole business model. Yep. Um, all right, moving right along. Uh, so – one, one sec before we move on here, um, I, I did want to mention that there was a letter from uh, Jerry Stanton who took sort of sort of a, a more uh, tongue in cheek uh, look at the technical part of the piracy, and, and he his letter in fact winds up that uh, um, unfortunately the the software protection business is a paradox. While coding a disk is like a lock, keeping honest people honest, the more sophisticated protection schemes on well written software attract the best code breakers. The only consolation to some software houses is that the quality of their programs. Don't interest the pirates or code breakers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, that's pretty astute. And there was another writer in that same section who commented that piracy probably, if anything, helps software developers because it gets mm. a lot of exposure out there. The software gets passed around and a lot more people see it. Uh, and the people who uh, just pirate it probably wouldn't have bought it anyway, which uh, you know, nowadays we have a lot of data on software piracy and it, the data does tend to back up that assertion. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was another group of letters about the article on uh, the visually impaired lady who was using her Apple II to continue right. doing her job, which yeah. we loved that story. And uh, there was sort of a, a related uh, theme in that article had been about other types of disabilities that computers were helping people with. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so a bunch of people wrote in about that. Some really nice letters, some really uh, interesting and sort of a lot of honestly pleas for help. Uh, people looking for software that would help their loved ones uh, with disabilities. And uh, the one that I'm afraid caught my eye was uh, just sort of a sign of the times. Uh, one lady describes uh, that she's looking for a way for computers to help her retarded son. Uh, which mm. is not a word we would use anymore. So uh, <laughs> one is uh, frequently reminded when reading these magazines uh, that 1980 was a different time. Indeed. Uh, some of the ads, of course, that we're seeing now are all Christmas-related and, and I guess, keeping with the theme of the magazine. 
Uh, Hayden Book Company, for example, has released its Christmas list of its titles that it thinks you should buy for Christmas. <laughs> and this includes uh, Sargon 2, which I think is a very good recommendation. It was a great mm-hmm. chess game, like yeah. you mentioned. Uh, they also recommend uh, the new Super Fourth, uh, extended version of the fourth language, and something called Energy Miser, a complete heating and cooling analysis program for your home or, home or office that will calculate heat loss and gain due to poor insulation, leaky doors, and windows. <laughs> and I will resist the urge to... Once again, tell the story of my delightful French teacher who played Sargon too. <laughs> uh, all right. So are we done with the letters? Or is there any more in there that you wanted to touch on? No, I think that was that was pretty much of, of, of interest for me. But we do have quite okay. a stocking stuffers holiday gift guide to go through here. Do we ever? Yeah, we, I think we can gloss over a lot of this. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the big, the big uh, draw here is the uh, opening photo, which is one of the most 80s photos I think <laughs> that is possible to create. So uh, worth a look just for that photo. Uh, the clothes, the hair, the, the yeah, they're sitting on the front steps for some reason. And uh, I love these photos that always have uh, someone on Facebook, on the Facebook group, I think, made this joke that uh, made me laugh. All of these promotional materials always show the whole family sitting around the computer, which has never happened anywhere ever. <laughs> Maybe the first day you got it or something, right. but at that point, no, the whole family never sat around the whole the, the computer. So anyway, but yeah, these people are actually sitting around it on the front steps for some reason. That's not exactly explained, but uh, yeah, love, love the '80s vibe that's going on there. Uh, there is um, one thing that that uh, springs out to 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 my attention here as I'm looking at this, and that's that you know we had this discussion back and forth about uh, online systems, paddle graphics, and tablet graphics, and all these mm-hmm. other programs. Um, and they said it says okay, so paddle graphics is a serious graphics development system for the business or entertainment software developer permits writing high res text directly from the keyboard any size shapes shape tables are constructed in minutes. Tablet Graphics is listed as the same software as Paddle Graphics, made available for use with Apple's graphics tablet. So, and these are both from online systems. Cool. Okay, so that basically answers the kind of the ongoing question that we had about were they using someone else's software or did they write their own software for that? And yeah, I guess mm-hmm. now we know. In uh, that same section, one that uh, jumped out at me uh, is called Uncopy. Uh, <laughs> it says it's a unique way to make Apple disks uncopyable. Just load in the software that you want protected and in it a disk with uncopy. That's it. Uh, (laughs) It says it's for AppleSoft. So, uh, yeah, paging 4 a.m. because I want to know what this thing is. I'm sure it's some adorably primitive form of copy protection. uh, But, uh, yeah, apparently you can apply it to your own software. So uh, I'd I'd love to see... uh, Someone download this or track this software down and protect something with it and then crack it and just tell us what it was doing because that would be neat to me. Well, in my head, that, that, that sounds sort of like an April Fool's joke where like you load <laughs> the software on the disk and then initialize the disk and, and nobody can copy it because there's nothing on it anymore. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so the, uh, uh, the other thing that I guess I wanted to mention about this section is that the prices for this software, all of this stuff... So, I guess since pe- people may not be following along, but this there's a, several pages here of just you know gift ideas, and it's just a huge list in small print of all of various Apple-related products. Uh, considering this is only 1980 at this point, this must be all of the Apple products that exist, but uh, there's just tons of them. And the prices are all over the map. It seems like there's this feeling that the market hasn't figured out what software is worth yet, and people mm-hmm. are just guessing. So, you know really sophisticated stuff like uh, Don Worth's uh, Linker is in here, which, you know, Linker and Loader uh, software is 
fairly sophisticated and, uh, you know, it creates relocatable, you know, assembly language binaries that you can link together. And, you know, that's a sophisticated task uh, that takes serious software to do. And he's charging what seems like a very reasonable $50 for that. Uh, meanwhile, there's this other program called VU number three, <laughs> which it says will turn a basic text file into a VisiCalc file and vice versa. I'm not entirely sure why you'd want to do that, uh, but I'm also pretty sure that's a very straightforward conversion. Uh, and they're asking $80 for it, which is wow. something like $250 today. So I, yeah, these prices are just all over the map. Hmm. Yeah. Um, we have a, an ad for uh, synergistic softwares uh, pre presenting great app ventures. And it's a number of their games, including Odyssey, The Complete, P-L-E-A-T, App Venture, uh, Dungeon Campaign, Wilderness Campaign, Doom Cavern, and Sorcerer's Challenge. Yeah, I'm glad you called out this ad because the other thing that jumps out at me, of course, is screenshots. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems like already, and you see a lot more of that in this issue, a lot of big high-res screenshots. And it feels like pretty quickly the developers are figuring out it's not just enough to say high-res graphics in text uh, in the ad. You have to actually show it. And uh, so there's just a lot of full-page ads with big, beautiful screenshots of the games, which I love to see. Uh, more pages of the continuing stocking stuffers list. There's some educational software that I didn't care about and still don't. <laughs> um, there's an ad for... Um, who made this? Well, it's the, the, the maker of Computer Bismarck is proud to announce two new games, Computer Conflict and Computer Air mm. Combat. Oh, it's SSI. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. But uh, what ca caught my eyes was this this very uh, um, prominent image of an AK-47 just uh, <laughs> at the top of the ad. Uh, again, a reminder that this is 1980. I don't know that you could get away with that today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the AK-47 was all in the news back then with, uh, you know, it was all, it was the era of Iran-Contra and... Yeah, a Soviet-made gun and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny how they, all of their products are all named computer something. Uh, yes. <laughs> sort, of, sort of like how the first generation of Mac software was all called Mac something. And then I guess that obviously silly naming convention finally wore off. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, so yeah, shortly thereafter, we talked uh, about in the last review about uh, Muse Software. In fact, a former member of Muse Software wrote in to ta tell us all about Supertext. Jim Sammons. And yeah, thank you for that. And uh, uh, yeah, they've definitely stepped it up in this issue. So we've got a nice big full screen ad now for uh, several of, uh, of their products. And uh, there's a little connection to a previous uh, episode here that I loved. Uh, I didn't realize that Muse uh, made Three Mile Island, which is... Yeah, me either. <laughs> yeah, last month or the month before, we talked about a, a user had... Uh, I uh, had uh, reverse engineered that piece of software and uh, fixed a bug in it. So, uh, yeah, it was neat to see that. Sansa's voice seems um, sort of interesting, um, certainly in, in, in line with the Christmas theme. It's a, uh, uh, your child selects a sequence, of a sequence of words from a standard vocabulary and Santa reads them back to, to your child. So I don't know how, how, how popular this would be come January 5th or so, but um, <laughs> certainly sell a few copies during Christmas. It does, it does say non-seasonal demo man face included. <laughs> non-seasonal. <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. That's, if we were being pol politically correct, that's my, what we might call Santa nowadays. Seasonal demo man. And uh, next we have uh, everybody's favorite uh, column assembly lines from Roger Wagner. This is part three, everyone's guide to mach uh, machine language. And Quinn, what did you take away from this? Uh, well, it continues to be an amazing article. And, uh, 
yeah, I, I admit to having skimmed this because I've been, of course, actually reading uh, Chris Torrance's uh, re-edit of these articles. So uh, I definitely read the read this article at some point. But uh, yeah, he's getting in at this point. He's getting into uh, some of the kind of housekeeping sides uh, of the assemblers. He's talking about pseudo opcodes for you know declaring bytes and creating constants and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. pretty uh, pretty Merlin specific. We have a full page ad for something called the Personal Computer Technical Analysis Group, letting us know that they're opening membership to individuals and firms now for the first time. I have no idea what this is, but there are lots of interesting graphs and charts, and I would yeah. like to join. <laughs> yeah, this this ad is baffling. I, I I read the whole thing twice, and I have no idea what it's about. I don't I don't know if, what <laughs> what they're selling or what they're doing. But there's again big beautiful screenshots of very impressive looking graphs and lots of business speak, such as uh, working hard isn't nearly as important as working well. So I don't, okay. I don't know. Uh, yeah, something about technical analysis, something, something, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, next page, we have a, an ad for the Eaton 7000 personal computer <laughs> printer, which looks nothing like a printer, but I think is actually looks it's like a receipt printer. Um, yeah, I think we made fun of that one last month. <laughs> we, okay, yeah. or one just like it. Plug in and print out in seconds. Yes, um, I all right, still so. have no idea who wants receipt printers. <laughs> or yeah, they don't have a price listed here, but I'm probably I'm sure it's it's very expensive. Yeah. Uh, the next page is trade talk. We have um, the quality software is announcing that it acquired distribution rights for the software factory. I think this is an early deal for Don Worth, who who made a lot of that um, um, I like beneath Apple Manor, beneath Apple DOS, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Uh, DC Hayes has changed its name to Hayes Microcomputer Products. Um, and I don't know. Do you see anything else interesting? Oh, com- uh, California Computer Systems has named Donald Sink to its vice president of marketing. This is how how inside baseball this magazine got on some of this business stuff. Yeah. And I guess, you know, this would have been a very small community back then. So I'm sure these people all knew each other. And this was a gossip column as much as anything else. The next article is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my uh, my summary of this uh, is that it's nice to be reminded that uh, digitizing used to be a really big deal, <laughs> and I think those of us who grew up with Apple II's remember this. But I mean, nowadays, you know, it's nothing. You take a digital photo and you airdrop it to your Mac or whatever. But getting something from the real world into digital format, uh, into like a high res image or a sound file or something, used to be extremely difficult. And there's a lot of very expensive and complicated ways to do it that sort of didn't work very well. And it was always unsatisfying. And so it's, yeah, we, it's, we do it so easily nowadays uh, that it's, yeah, it's nice to be, it's fun to be reminded how, how challenging this used to be and what a big deal it was. So this is, uh, the article is called an eye for the apple and it's uh about a product this uh, this young fellow has been working on that takes uh, scans a, a video signal from a, a video camera and uh, digitizes it basically, and uh, yeah, so he's doing various types of dithering uh, to sort of create the image on the high res screen. Uh, the method that they're using reminds me of like Computerize or um, there was another similar product. So that he's doing a vertical scanning. Uh, algorithm that I think a lot of them did, and uh, so it takes you know several seconds to gather the image up, uh, depending on the quality level that you want. Uh, but yeah, it's you know it looks like kind of a neat product, and uh, it's one of those things where again, like so you would have needed all this expensive equipment, you needed this big you know uh, you need a video camera, which of course at the time meant you know these were CRT cameras, so they were big heavy glass things, uh, very expensive, elaborate cables, and you know BNC connectors and all of that jazz. 
uh, and then you need to hook it up to your to your computer with some sort of special interface card, and then you need the software to do all this. And you do all of that, and you get this image that you can't really do anything with. So it was <laughs> it was a lot of effort to be able to look at a picture of your cat on the screen briefly in terrible quality and go, huh, neat. Well, you could print it out on uh, on um, on your your dot matrix printer, and then make fun of the HP people for their printer that can't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that I mean, even as as late as into the two GS era, I remember being constantly frustrated with digitizing, trying to digitize uh, pictures and and audio, and how it just was never very good. And then you would get the content in there and it was either not useful in any way because you was too big, you know, because you're, you know, you've got a floppy disk and an image is huge by comparison to your storage. And I guess it just, the end result was always just kind of a toy and not very useful for anything. Yeah. Okay. So next up we have the market talk review section and um, most of that software doesn't look all that interesting. There's a mention of uh, Nizir Gabelli, I think I pronounced that correctly, and uh, Cyberstrike uh, released by uh, Sirius, which um, I always love Sirius software stuff. Yes. Um, Sirius presents Plasmania. There you go. Yes. <laughs> um, and the other thing that caught my eye was this uh, game called Hellfire Warrior, which apparently was uh, the latest entry in the Dungeon Quest series, which is uh, it, it picks up where Temple of Apshay left off. And I didn't know there was anything after that. So um, other than like upper reaches and lower reaches. So that looks pretty cool. Yeah, I think I had heard that they were planning to do sequels, and I think I thought they never did. So hmm. turns out they did. Okay. Makes sense. I mean, it was a sort of a generic engine, so they, no reason they couldn't sort of keep cranking out games, I guess, on that engine. Uh, let's see. Uh, the ongoing stocking stuffers list continues here. Your typical, you know, Broderbund software released the Galactic Empire Trader Revolution series. Um, I think those were originally sold in the, like the Ziploc baggies. So that's how far back we're going here. Anything else of interest in here? For you? No, the next thing that jumped out at me is several pages on. Uh, there's an ad for Microgammon 2. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And this is, this is a nice one because, again, you know, what a difference from last month where every software ad was a little blurb of text that said, hi, res graphics. And now almost every ad has a great big, nice screenshot. Uh, so some sort of memo must have gone out or something to the developers and they all went, oh, I see people have to see it. So, or maybe Softalk started offering that service or something. I don't know what happened, but suddenly we have screenshots for every game, big, big or small. And, uh, you know, because this is a small company, um, but they managed to get this really quite nice looking screenshot. It's actually a really nice looking yeah. backgammon game. So I'm sure that sold a lot more copies than if they had just said backgammon, high res graphics. Probably so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next page over, we have an, an ad that caught my eye for a company called Rainbow Computing Incorporated. Uh, they were located in the Garden Plaza Shopping Center in Reseda. Yeah. I'm sorry, Northridge on Reseda Boulevard. <laughs> This is a Mr. Rainbow is announcing their all new 1980 catalog and prompts you to peek at the latest collection of hardware, software, and uh, hardware and software products for your Apple II. No indication of what those might be, what those look like, or anything. Just a little cute drawing of a <laughs> guy standing on the catalog and a logo that looks suspiciously like online systems with that O <laughs> that kind of looped around the, oh, yeah. the, the words. Yeah, I didn't notice that. that yeah, that is a little uh, borderline uh, sketchy there. It's also funny that they call themselves Rainbow Computing and what looks like probably supposed to be a rainbow striped logo, but it's in a black and white magazine, so it kind of loses all of the impact. Right. <laughs> uh, 
an ad for Supertext 2, which we were taking the task for calling boring. <laughs> yes. For Muse. Yeah, and again, Muse, Muse really stepped up their marketing this month. I mean, last month they had one small, like a third-page ad for a bunch of their software. And here we've got two full-page ads, one entirely dedicated to Supertext 2. So, yeah, they definitely stepped up the marketing budget. Okay, now we have Christmas Spirits, which appears to be a guide for making alcoholic drinks. <laughs> Yeah. A mention of some some super bar bartending software for the Apple II at the bottom of the page. Yeah, this is sort of funny. I mean, I think it speaks to how Softalk was trying to be a little different than, you know, Nibble or the other magazines, which were very Mm -hmm. technical. You know, Softalk is trying to be a little bit more lifestyle. So there's a lot of stories about just, you know, the people behind the computers and what people are doing with them to improve their lives. And then also articles like this one where it's like, oh, here's some holiday themed drinks you can make, you know, at your bar. So... Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of neat. I, I think maybe in later months, maybe they move a bit away from this. But uh, yeah, it's certainly a striking contrast to what you would have found in, in Nibble or A plus or something. Uh, next page, we have an ad for the book of Apple computer software, 1981. Uh, features, uh, it sells for, uh, sold for 1995 and, and apparently contained a complete critical analysis of the majority of Apple software in the market today, um, which sounds like a whole lot. And I haven't <laughs> seen this book, but... I have I scanned in a 700 page book that was kind of similar in theme uh, for uh, 1981 and um, man there were a lot of software titles in that <laughs> year. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess you don't appreciate uh, until you look back on it what a big explosion it was. You know, uh, here we are just a year or two after the machines were widely available and there's hundreds and hundreds of software programs. So. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of people went crazy writing software as fast as they could. Um, next page, we have Market Talk News. A couple of interesting items here. First is uh, that Muse has uh, introduced what it called the 21st century equivalent of chess, uh, a.k.a. Robot War. Hmm. Uh, a favorite game of, uh, I think, many Apple II fans of the day. So yeah, I don't, I, think, it. I don't think I realized it was that old. Hmm. Bob Sanders Cedarloff, who owned uh, SC Software, uh, has premiered his... A uh, newsletter called Apple Assembly Line. Um, he, of course, uh, was the author of SC Assembler 2. So if you were a fan of that uh, particular assembler package, the uh, there was, a, um, a, I think, a long-running a long running run of, of these, these newsletters that were very informative and very helpful for not only learning the software product, but just how to write uh, assembly in general. Yeah, he's got a lot of great tricks. Uh, it's a little bit less... Um sort of methodically instructional than Roger, Roger Widener's articles are, but it's a lot of like neat tricks and things you wouldn't have thought of and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, he has uh, personally archived all of those uh, on his own site. So we can... Yeah, they're uh, we can... all uh, online and available for download. Yeah, we can probably link to that in the show notes. Uh, there's an interesting ad here for keypads. Um, of course, the Apple II, uh, they were, didn't come with a, a keypad built in. That would first show up later on the Apple III. See, got it mentioned, got it mentioned. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Um, <laughs> these, were not, uh, these were not made by Apple, and I think these predate the Apple-branded ones that you could buy later for your Apple IIe, um, and a bar wand where you could scan UPC codes. This is from Advanced Business Technologies. Yeah, these are two other things that I always wondered about, Uh, you know, being mostly a game player and programmer with my Apple II, never like a serious business user. I always wondered, there was always numeric keypads for sale for every computer, and there was always barcode readers available. Did people buy those? I mean, 
write into us and tell us. I want to know who who out there was buying these numeric keypads and who needed to enter numbers uh, so 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 much more efficiently that this would have made a difference for them. I'm curious. Right. Were you actually using an Apple II as a point of sale at any time? Yeah, or did you? I'd like, I'd like to know. Did you need to enter huge columns of numbers? I'm sure somebody did, but I'm just curious how widespread these things really were, or if this was one of those things where a whole bunch of people thought it was probably a good idea and made all these products, but then none, none of them ever sold well, maybe? I don't know. Uh, next in their continuing exec series where they introduce uh, companies and company executives, we have M&R, M&R Enterprises in Sunnyvale. And uh, it starts off the article saying uh, they have a sign uh, says that says restricted area trespassers will be shot. What on earth is going on here? <laughs> yeah, so uh, it sounds like this is a company that was making components, uh, the diodes, capacitors, etc., and uh, they got into Apple II peripherals. Um, so, uh, yeah, this reporter took a tour of their office and got to see some of the products they were uh, working on. And it uh, sounds like it was mainly a group from the Homebrew Computer Club. So, oh, okay. um, like a lot of the members of that kind of came and went and they all stayed in touch and so on. And uh, apparently uh, the... Uh, this guy, the exec that they're interviewing here, says that there was apparently a lot of idea theft going on that, uh, you know, isn't talked about so much. Uh, you know, he says that, you know, Wozniak and others would go to the Homebrew Computer Club and they'd show off these cool things they were building. And then some of the members of that club would then go quietly run off and make and sell products based on those <laughs> ideas. Uh, so there was apparently a lot of that going on. Um uh, but uh, yeah, so he talks about some of the products that they were developing, some of which maybe the ideas uh, were triggered by uh, the Homebrew Computer Club and some not. Okay, this is Marty Spurgel, uh, which is probably a name that you recognize if you've read uh, Stephen Levy's 1984 book, Hackers. Mm -hmm. um, he is mentioned a lot in uh, in the early chapters of the book, specifically, as you said, uh, in conjunction with the Homebrew Computer Club. So um, looks, it's, it looks like this is sort of like, here's what he's doing now. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I do remember even that the, the talk in that book was um, uh, about how the early days of, of homebrew, people would just bring their ideas in and, and trade ideas, you know, and look for like, hey, here's a better way to do something. And um, as as these individuals became proprietors and, and founders of companies and ideas became valuable, it became a lot less interesting because nobody would talk about anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and it sounded like from this article that maybe it wasn't ever quite the hippie commune loving sort of idea sharing that we think of because, like I say, a lot of the, those ideas ended up getting quietly uh, stolen and uh, put into products. Um, the other thing that struck out to me about this article is that uh, he talks about how you know, it's exciting. They're getting into Apple II peripherals. They're building these different things. But at the end of the day, the real money for them was in the components and the capacitors and the diodes and so on. And uh, it was sort of a good analogy, I thought, to the California gold rush where, you know, we always hear the stories about the miners. But according to the historians anyway, the people that made the real money were like the general store owners that were selling rope and pickaxes to all these idiots who were traveling across the country to go and try to find gold in the river. Uh, so this kind of reminded me of that. They're, they're selling the components to all these other companies that are trying to get rich making receipt printers or whatever. Okay. On the next page, we have uh, Soft Talk's bestseller lists, one of the things that they became known for and one of the things I always enjoyed reading in these magazines. Um, this was uh, before they had split the list up into like business apps and games, um, but they did have the top 30. We won't read all of those, but the <laughs> top five. Uh, included VisiCalc, which was being sold for $97.34. Um, next was High res Adventure number two, 60 bucks. Whoa. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right about these prices being all over the place. Um, 
Nazir's Star Cruiser was be, was uh, number three. Flight Simulator from uh, Bruce Artwickett's Sublogic was $50, and that was number four. CCA Data Management Systems was number five. Um, and um, it looks like Bill Budge is actually, his space album was number six, and then he he comes in again a little bit further down the list, the 3D graphic system yeah, uh, like, was number 19. Like 20 of them are Bill Budge after this point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah he was all over this list. So, yeah. Um, and um, we got to talk to him, so that was pretty darn cool. Yeah, it was. And actually, I like to see uh, uh, Dogfight is number 11 at this point, which uh, oh, we, yeah. ta- we talked about that last time uh, with regards to their ad, and how that was what I thought at the time was just a throwaway game that showed up on, you know, as a file crack on every disc that you had. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's nice to see actually it sold really well. So good for them. But I also enjoyed that uh, in, in addition to like just listing their positions this month, but they would list where they were last month. So you could see what was coming up and what was sliding down and um, very fascinating uh, back then. And uh, certainly an interesting way to keep looking, but uh, an interesting way to look back and see, um, how th- what the trends were back in 1980. Yeah, it's interesting little data points, these, uh, these lists. Got a full-page ad for Eduware, uh, from Eduware for The Prisoner, which I did not know was based on the television series, but that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of an interesting graphic here. It's sort of a shadow of a person crouched in a cage that's shaped like Apple's logo. I don't know. <laughs> If that's a good thing or not. Yeah, this this ad's getting away with a lot. Uh, it's ripping off Apple's trademark and ripping off the prisoner's trademark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is this is another ad that uh, was a teeny tiny little square of all text in last month, and this month is a full page graphic, mm-hmm. big punchy ad right on the back page. Like they're going big here. Profits are going up. We can spend more on advertising. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and speaking of ads, I think uh, we glossed over one somewhere. I had one of my notes. There was a. Uh, column ad, uh, the slogan at the top was uh, KISS, and there was a picture of lips oh, and yeah. uh, keep it s- s- something, something simple. I don't know. Um, anyway, some software that they were selling. But what st- struck me was, again, my obsession of looking at the addresses. Uh, this company was in Bakersfield, California, and anyone who knows the Central Valley knows there's definitely no software development happening in Bakersfield anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Bakersfield is a lot of things, but a uh, software development hub is not one of them. So that was an interesting uh, swing in uh, in fates. Yeah, and we're going to have to get back, I think, next time to, to like, Googling the, their locations and things. <laughs> that was a lot of fun, and people seem to really enjoy that. Yeah, I I did do a couple this time, but I didn't comment on them because none of them were as funny as last time. Um, oh, okay. There's a lot more actual office spaces now, so you see ah. a, a lot more like, you know, second floor of a mini mall suite 312 type of thing. Uh, gotcha. And a lot less of some guy's house in Lincoln, Nebraska. Well, it looks like things were really taking <laughs> off back then, like you said. Yeah, yeah, it's turning into a real business very quickly here. It's remarkable. Now, I'm looking at this on the archive.org, and there's a weirdness here where it shows me that I'm on page 36 of 36. And then if I click the arrow, it jumps to page 40 of 40, so I don't know. But for me, the next page is the the back cover, which is that PFS software ad that we talked about last time. Yes. Yeah, that's the same for me as well. Okay. Well, then I guess that uh, wraps up Soft Talk. And uh, unless you have anything else, Quinn, that's probably the, we'll do it for this month. 
Yeah, that was all I had on both Soft Talk and I think for the episode. So uh, hopefully everyone's still enjoying us going through these magazines. Uh, mm. As uh, you no doubt noticed this time, it's going to start going a lot faster because it's a lot of the same ads and a lot of the same kinds of things each month. So uh, and it's going to get really slow when they get up to 100 pages. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we're kind of struggling with uh, how to organize the show with uh, multiple segments now that are that are lengthy. So uh, we're kind of experimenting with the format here a little bit, but uh, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Mm -hmm. Thanks again uh, to Mark for joining us. Uh, Can't Mm -hmm. can't wait to play Nox Archaeist. Yeah, really looking forward to Kansas Fest even more now. Exactly. And uh, I think the gauntlet might be thrown to the Lawless Legends team. We're going to have a an epic Apple II game developer showdown of some sort. I hope they're... Uh, I told you, dance battle is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I just I just want to see uh, awesome new updates from both teams. Uh, yeah, me too. Maybe some dancing. There you go. <laughs> All right, well, that does it for this month. Uh, thanks, everybody. Bye. This is the new Apple IIc. This is a computer they call Junior. You might think they're similar... But this one can only run this many programs, while the Apple IIc can run this many. The Apple comes with its disk drive built in, so it's much smaller. Even the price is small. Now, which one would you rather take home? The new Apple IIc. Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. Oh, Kevin Savitz. We didn't we didn't get him in. Oh, <laughs> Boo Kevin. There no, you go. not Boo Kevin. Boo Atari. <laughs> yeah. Yay Kevin. Boo Atari. Yeah, yeah, yay Kevin. Boo Atari. All right.